Welcome to our, what is it, our edition of Breaking Down Incident Response. Sounds about right. I'm Brian, and that's Michael, of course. Uh, let's go over a show summary. First of all, if you want to sponsor our show, we're always looking for sponsors, big and small. So uh, you're in InfoSec, you want to be in InfoSec maybe, figure out how to get a hold of us and contact us for a sponsor. We have some newsworthy items today, uh, really exciting stuff, quite a few of them too. Actually, we'll talk about our malware of the month. It's really cool. And we have some site-worthy items, tool-worthy items, as well as our topic of the day. Topic is called author. And uh, now a word from our sponsors. This podcast is also brought to you by LogMD, the log and malicious discovery tool for Windows-based systems for IT, InfoSec, IR, and forensics professionals. It helps you assess your audit log settings against several industry standards, including the Windows Logging Cheat Sheet, so you can improve your logging to collect all the right things. LogMD can also be used to hunt for targeted, malicious, and interesting artifacts such as large registry keys, autoruns, WMI persistence, malicious PowerShell execution, and targeted log events that can then be collected by your log management solution. LogMD provides more details and easy-to-read reports than your EDR solutions can provide. We offer a free, professional, and consulting licenses. Discover it. Discover LogMD today at log-md.com. The moment we've all been waiting for. I don't, have a, I don't have a drum roll sound bit. I really need to get Oh, one. crap. Okay, so his name is Olaf Hortung, and he's a specialist leader at a big four consulting firm, and he's from the Netherlands. Welcome, Olaf. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm getting there. Come on. <laughs> All right, and you can look at his blog uh, and his GitHub page in the show notes. Let's, uh, and Olaf, please jump in here for any witty commentary on our uh, newsworthy items. Our first one, somebody has ISO files via emails. Yeah, so we, we've talked in the past about the list of things we tell people block an email, right? So typical JSF, uh, WSF, WSH, JC, JS, etc. Um, this seems to be a new way to get things into the organization. People don't block the, the CD or DVD format of .iso and .img, so that is a new thing. Uh, we did actually play with one of these in the lab. I thought it was pretty clever. Uh, zip file, you just extract the ISO and you can see what's inside of it. And most people have some sort of de-archiving on their desktop. So new way to get in through the email system. Uh, interesting. There's a MSoft uh, link in the blog about it. But uh, just another way to infect you that probably is not being blocked in your email gateway. So that's the trip tip of the day. Block.iso and .img files. And... Next article is uh, from ZDNet. Avast and French police take over malware botnet and disinfect 850,000 computers. I remember reading this last week, right? Yeah. I thought this was interesting because if, uh, you know, maybe Olaf, you can you can chime in, you may know. The fact that they, A, found this botnet and shut it down, yay, it's always a good thing, but disinfected the machine. So did they actually issue commands that told the malware to uninstall? You know, is that is that a thing uh, is that allowed? Or, you know, are we allowed to do that in our industry? That's actually a very good question. There's a lot of debate, in, in, at least in the Netherlands, about this. Um, and so far, at least from a, from a legal perspective, uh, people are still undecided. It's a gray area, which is kind of interesting because it's a lot of machines to clean up. It is. Yeah, that's why I put it in here. I was kind of like, hmm, is this really something? I'm still on the fence on this one. I mean, I could be convinced either way, I guess. 
I, I don't like the fact that people are reaching in and making changes. But then again, this is a huge botnet and they are criminals for installing this stuff. So I, I guess thumbs up in this one. I'm, I'm not sure. Is this uh, one of those? Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Yeah, it's a hard one. You know, because you got infected and you don't know that's there. Because if you did, you'd delete it. Is this one of those where we know better than you do, so we're just going to do it? Kind of the same thing Microsoft's doing with patches. So, yeah, interesting thing to, to consider uh, in cleaning up uh, large botnets. Yeah, it sounds kind of big brotherish, right? Food for thought. Yeah. Our next article is from Tech Radar. Yeah, this one really got my attention. I, I love the numbers in these cases. It shows that all the security tools we have, we still, according to this article and research by SonicWall, have over 10 billion, with a B, malware attacks detected in 2018. Uh, that's that's a huge number. Uh, I'm sure a lot of these are not the unique. Uh, if you look for uh, avtest.org, they'll generally uh, keep track of these numbers over the years. Uh, but you know, 10 billion malware attacks, which means this problem's not getting better with all the technology and EDR and AV and improvements and things we do. Um, kind of like you're screwed. There's nothing nothing you can do to stop us kind of numbers. It's a wake-up call from a perspective of nothing's getting better. It means one of the topics we're going to be talking about in the future uh, in regards to preparation. It means you're going to need to do more of the basics in order to be able to detect these. Uh, and again, I've, I've always said prevention's kind of a a misnomer, a fantasy, ideology. Uh, you can prevent a lot of things or reduce it. It's a funnel, right? And eventually there's still a hole. Um, and 10 billion in 2018 is kind of a shocking number. And so, yeah, you got to do more basics and do more logging and do more analytical things. I think if you're going to keep ahead of this or reimage your PC every day and go to some some logic with that, with some virtual machine. But yeah, huge numbers, um, kind of shocking. Yeah, that's definitely a podcast topic. Get back to the basics the fancy tools, I guess, don't cover everything. So our, our next, I guess it's a report from FishMe. 91% of cyber attacks start with a phishing email. Yeah, so FishMe, we have a friend here in town who's on the podcast, Martin. I've you know always said that phishing is number one way of getting infected in organizations. Um, you know, red teams use it. Uh, the bad guys obviously use it. We just talked about ISO files now being allowed in and as a way to get by this stuff. And uh, it, it's interesting because it means email needs to be more focused, right? Uh, bottom line is, if these numbers, again, coming from a phishing company, but I have heard this number touted by other security firms. So either they're using these numbers or uh, this is kind of a general consensus that 90%, right? The majority of your, your attacks and way of getting compromised comes in via email and usually an attachment or you know, URL that's in there that you click on that you will then download something. But the topics are, are interesting. It shows the success of the types of topics, right? The, the ways people are duped into these phishing emails. Uh, curiosity, 13.7%, you know, the curiosity killed the cat. Uh, fear, oh my gosh, you're going to, you know, I, I didn't pay my taxes or something like that. Uh, urgency, you must pay this bill now. Uh, that was 13.4% for fear and 13.2% for urgency. It's interesting. They're all kind of 13 percent across the board followed by reward recognition social entertainment and opportunity uh, this could be something you feed into your uh, user awareness program and try to focus your users at just this kind of information to say hey look if you see emails that are you know that you're curious think twice 
if it makes you fearful or there's some sort of urgency um, or reward recognition, um, I'm guessing that's probably a great way to get red teaming right reward. You just want a, a, a gift card or something. People will say, oh, cool. This is something you can train your folks and kind of make them aware of on whether it'll help or not. Obviously, if uh, we're still having 10 billion uh, malware hits uh, in 2018, maybe it won't help any. Um, but interesting numbers. Yeah, and yeah. a gift a gift card to a movie would hit both of those oh, yeah. uh, recognition oh, yeah. and entertainment. Yeah, exactly. And and in terms of uh, attachments, there was a, there was a study done by Proofpoint, I think, was released uh, some, something like a week ago, where where they did an analysis on the type of an, uh, attachments used, and the predominant one still was macros. It's still a thing. And then next to that one, it was PowerShell, which are two of the most used ones still and should be blocked uh, because you usually don't need those. Yeah, scripting and PowerShell. Scripting is one of the things we tell people to turn off. No reason a client should double-click an email and it launches WScript. You know, 91-plus percent of your users do not need to have that ability. So go ahead and turn that off and let it open a notepad. You'll drop your phishing attacks by like a rock. So, you know, great example. But, yeah, so be aware, people. Email is somewhere you should focus. And uh, we'll talk about that in an upcoming uh, episode in, in regards to prepping for an event. All right, and our last story it's from Yahoo News, revealed how a secret Dutch mole aided the U.S.-Israeli Stuxnet cyber attack on Iran. I knew it! Let's see if uh, the listeners can figure out where this story... Yeah, this was a really interesting story. I found this yesterday. It was released in the newspaper first in the Netherlands. I think it was predominantly investigated by a Dutch journalist who has really good contacts within the uh, intelligence agency over here. And what I found interesting about this one, of course, it's an old an old virus that everybody mm-hmm. used to, you should, should know about, the Stuxnet virus. Um, and there's a lot known about the attack on this uh, nuclear facility in Iran. They didn't know how, how they got it in there, right? So, so this is kind of interesting where they dig into how this uh, sort of built up into where the U.S. and the Israelis uh, contacted the Dutch uh, intelligence agency to recruit an Iranian engineer who uh, was actually uh, successfully entering the facility a couple of times to uh, read some statistics, to tweak the virus and to get in there on a USB stick, of all things, because it's air-gap, not like the one in the Ukraine. So that was actually a really nice story. It's quite lengthy, so take your time reading it. But it's um, yeah, I find it very uh, interesting to read. So I think we knew a conventional wisdom was that it was through USB, but we figured maybe it was on pictures and stuff that they were sharing. Uh, we didn't know that there was actually somebody with with an intent purpose of spreading this thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that was kind of cool. Um, and and they're, they're, they they go on to uh, to to tell a little bit more about how they um, uh, achieved all this knowledge. There was actually a Dutch uh, Pakistani researcher that helped develop these um, these centrifuges and then the, defected off to Pakistan. And, well, this, 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 it's a whole uh, it's a whole read it's, it's very good okay now on to our next topic all right we've got uh, a few site worthy items first uh, we've got one called arthur.com michael tell us about arthur.com yeah so this is just a shorten url to make it easy but it's a github page so github.com our archaeology slash arthur a-r-t-h-i-r uh, arthur.com just uh, we took the domain because we can and it makes it easy to get there but this is where the project that we're going to be talking about lives and resides on github it's where you'll get your free stuff uh, on github page so we're posting this for public consumption and of course public participation 
uh, as one of the public people, our guest here, uh, worked on with us. Yeah, that's where you can get today's materials. I like free stuff. So, Olaf, you've got a website as well, L-O-L-B-O-B-A-S. Yeah, there's another GitHub project for you. Uh, this one is one by Otvar Mo, who is a, a really good red teamer and an MVP at Microsoft. Um, and this is basically a project which contains a lot of living of the land binaries and scripts. So it's a Windows-focused uh, 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 environment repository. Sorry, and it cl- includes a lot of examples of all the ways that you can um, misuse uh, common executables and scripts that are in your Windows installation. Uh, so it's a very useful resource for attackers and defenders. Uh, it lists a lot of detection options per executable, and they're all mapped to uh, to MITRE ATT&CK, which is, uh, again, right. very useful. Right. Well, we love the MITRE ATT&CK stuff. And this, by the way, would be a list for me or anybody else. Uh, maybe I need to compare this to the list I have published on my archaeology uh, of the binaries one should watch the execution of. Totally. Right? We call these admin yeah. utilities. And definitely watch the execution of these because generally when the bad guys get in, they'll execute these in quantity, not just once like you normally see them, but they'll do three or four or five or 18 or 24 of these things. Yeah, right? and you can pro- provide the, uh, the attributes next to it. So if you have um, a, a certain uh, executable that is quite commonly used for by admins as well, some of the, the attribute flags aren't that used or aren't used that often. So at least you can have some, some detection rules on that one. Right. And now our next topic. We have one tool that's the topic of our show, and that is called Arthur, if you didn't know. Yeah. So uh, that is the tool. <laughs> A little obvious in this one. Olaf, you, you've got one as well. Yeah, one of the tools I wanted to highlight is uh, is called Mordor. It's created by, uh, created by Roberto Rodriguez, and it's a repository uh, with pre-recorded security events uh, generated by simulated adversarial techniques, and it's fully stored in JSON, so you can ingest it into most of the security platforms out there. Um, and currently, it has the APT3 scenario that was used by MITRE in their EDR evaluations, and it contains all the means basically to create your own additional data sets, uh, which obviously are welcome uh, as a pull request uh, by Roberto. But it's a, this is a very useful thing. So you can have a lot of detection rules, and you're not always in the situation where you can play a script in your production environment to test whether it's really working. Then you could le- at least replay this uh, this JSON file into your environment to see if your uh, analytics pick it up. How do you ingest that JSON file? You need a third-party tool, obviously, and, and yeah, what are some of those. It kind of depends on your uh, on your on your sim or, or uh, uh, analytic platform, but. The way Roberto envisions it is uh, is through a Kafka chain. So so you you basically uh, play the JSON file into your Kafka stream, which gets picked up by your uh, by your analytic tools. So you you possibly have to build something for this. Okay, now let's talk about malware of the month. I remember this one, Ursniff. Ursniff, yeah, we have a link to Sentinel One's article on it in VMRay. And the nice thing about the VMRay article is it does list the MITRE attack. Uh, techniques used so that's uh, i love seeing that that's a kudos to that one better article from that perspective but they did a good write-up on it both of them and so take those reads for sure um, because i think this is a, a good example of how the analysis should be done moving forward it helps us map that to our defenses and detection capabilities uh, this is a typical Word doc delivery. There's nothing, again, fancy, right? It's the macro, enable macros. Uh, so please disable that in your organization and, and create exception groups for those that have to have them. Um, but this is how it's delivered. Again, Word 
Winward calling PowerShell is always bad. It's that combination of parent-child. We talk, we've talked about that many times on a podcast, so definitely trigger on that. And PowerShell executing base 64 generally does not happen in the norm, so again, trigger on that as well. Uh, VB script is then used to download the payload. Uh, it stores it you know, elsewhere, the user directory structure somewhere. Uh, the interesting thing found by the article is as they tested this download over and over and over again that it... Uh, basically mutated on each download. So the first person that downloaded got a different version than second to third to fourth dot, 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 on to 100. So uh, if you get, let's say, five of these in your organization, uh, every user is going to have a different uh, hash in, in binary. So, um, you know, chasing hashes isn't really going to be a, a good thing. Plus, if you upload the hash to VirusTotal with these uh, mutations, they're probably not going to be detected. You may not think they're bad. So a uh, little sneakiness there. Um, key detection points, uh, they have obviously auto runs. Uh, this is uh, similar to Drydex in that it creates a run key on shutdown. So this is something like, for example, you ran LogMD uh, looking for all the current auto runs, you wouldn't see one. You'd have to turn on auditing, uh, registry auditing and or file auditing to watch for the keys to be created on the shutdown and reboot being deleted. Then you could get uh, detect it with an auditing event, a file and registry auditing event as it created the reg key in the, in the file. So yeah, that's uh, that's how that sucker works. Um, and again, there's a cheat sheet for that. So go to the Archaeology cheat sheets and there are some keys you definitely should uh, put into your environment to, to audit on because they're so heavily used like the run keys. Um, they are randomly named executables and it does inject into your browsers. It is a banking trojan to steal passwords and whatnot. So that's what it's looking for. Um, but that's its main thing, which means you got to look for injections if you're going to find that. Um, more on that in a future podcast as well. Prevention, uh, again, you know, email attachments and or URLs. So, you know, back to that email conversation that seems to come up in a, a lot of podcasts and discussions. Uh, block macro execution, no reason. Uh, there are some reasons, obviously. There's always an exceptions, but uh, everybody should not have this macro capability. It's available to you in the later Office versions to turn this on through group policy. So please block macro executions. And of course, you can look at uh, application whitelisting of the user's directory. Don't allow things in the user directory to execute unless they're approved. A little harder to manage, maybe a lot harder depending on what solution you're using. You can lock down PowerShell. Olaf mentioned it as well. Uh, that's, you know, there's, there's ways to secure PowerShell so that it doesn't generally execute in your environment. And of course, EDR generally catches this kind of behavior. So something to look at there from a prevention perspective. You play with any uh, Ursniff, Olaf? Excellent. I haven't. No, I haven't encountered it, sort of fortunately or sadly, depending <laughs> on how you see it. <laughs> I, we always like the tricky ones to do these kinds of, where's, where's there's no auto run, you know, first thing you'll hear out of Betcher's mouth, reboot, did you reboot? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> We're always looking for that. Yeah, and, and the uh, delivery mechanism can change, right? When, when we talk about the malware, it's typically not the macro, but it's what the macro installs behind that. Yeah, we're seeing a run, for example, something I've noticed in the last several uh, samples we've looked at, uh, WMI is now being used uh, a lot more to initiate things uh, after the Word doc does its uh, opening of, of malicious payloads. Um, that's that's fairly new. That's not something I used to see a lot, you know, in the years past. But now suddenly WMI, uh, it's needed, especially on servers, and uh, more so with all this uh, bloatware that we get with these laptops today. So maybe that's uh, something they've determined is a better way to execute this, or they're just trying to make the uh, signature people chase them. Yeah, and it's still a WMI is still a thing that is often overlooked by defenders as well because it's 
it's not the most accessible uh, uh, way of detecting stuff. It's a bit messy in a way. So it's not the easiest thing to detect. And also even EDRs tend to miss this stuff. And what, what I've also seen uh, as, a, as a download method is where they, they tend to use WebDAV uh, a little bit more uh, because that seems to be also be overlooked uh, by a lot of the detection agents. Yeah, if the tool doesn't uh, log the command line stuff natively into the local logs, then it's a better uh, attack mechanism for sure. And the tactic of using WMI is not new. It's just that... It's new that a whole bunch of malware is using it now. Maybe shared code. Yeah. Maybe. Or everything else is getting detected, like PowerShell. Uh, did we did we talk about the number of how many malware payloads there were last year? Billion. <laughs> yeah. Billion. <laughs> They're not detecting any of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. All right. Our topic of the day is Arthur. The Attack Remote Threat Hunting Incident Response Tool. That's what it stands for. Or the... Uh... As our former manager said, uh, who comes up with these names? <laughs> you know, InfoSec isn't great at naming things, <laughs> but it's descriptive, right? We want you to use attack information. It's definitely something you do remote. You use it for threat hunting and incident response. It's a perfect name. Uh, yeah, definitely not a marketing name, but uh, practical for sure. So what is Arthur and what's the problem it's trying to solve? Uh, we've always said, I, I'm a big, big fix lover if you're an IBM house and you have big fix you probably have the best security tool you don't even know it big fix is cool because one of the things it does for you because it has an agent on all the machines is you can reach out remotely to all these machines and ask it questions do you have this file in this location do you have this hash in this location do you have this reg key uh, can I run a tool that collects information and bring it back, right? So uh, Big Fix provides all this to you. And I've often said as a consultant, which is perfect for Olaf, you know, what can I walk into an organization with in my little laptop and execute in an environment so I can ask systems questions, I can run my tools remotely uh, without getting into building packages with SSCM and doing inventories and all that that SSCM does in a Windows environment and uh, and accomplish what I need. And I had uh, basically sought out our, our big thing, Brian and I obviously, was trying to run LogMD remotely and get back the reports. Uh, it's one thing pushing a tool out and getting it to run. It's another to get all back that data, that, that LogMD, you know, 30 plus reports that LogMD does and get that data back. And I want to be able to say, look, I want to go check the environment for auto runs. Uh, I want to go check the environment for uh, odd WMI, you know, et cetera. I want to go harvest the logs, whatever my, my need is. And so that's the problem we were trying to solve specifically was remotely run a tool. Now, we run other tools in LogMD, so that would be another problem to be solved is, you know, can I run some of the sys internal tools, for example, uh, at remotely and then get their native report? I guess the big important point here is native reporting back, whatever the tool nat- naturally does, because if I got to convert that report into something that can be consumed back, saying use PowerShell or whatnot. Uh, that's just harder, more prone to mistakes, uh, more maintenance and, and whatnot involved. So that was generally the problem uh, we were trying to solve. And if we solved it for our problem, then again, how do you run one or more of your favorite tools remotely against the system and get back the results would be the generic problem that's being solved. And then, of course, an easy way to get this stuff pushed out during incident response uh, whether you use a GPO tweak or, or whatnot, uh, how do how do I get that? How do I get that executed? How do I get that back? And of course, something that's free and easy, and and the community can participate on it. So that's that's generally the problem. What we were trying to solve 
that I reached out to a couple people in the community and said, Hey, I got some problems with this. Uh, you got any, got any advice? Now, was this written from scratch? Uh, no, this was a project that was forked off of what's known as Kanza. Dave's, Dave's little project he no longer supports because he kind of works for a competitor of a product to Kanza. And I actually have no idea where Dave went to work. So he no longer supports it, but it was forked from Kanza and uh, tweaks were made to the main Kanza project. Now, fortunately, the the makeup, the layout, the configuration, the way that Kanza was developed was pretty good. It was modular. So it, it was perfect for people who want to contribute. I want to write a module to do this. They can just literally write that module and add it to a directory, add it to a modules uh, file, and then you know they can execute it. So we took advantage of something that was already out there. It sort of worked. Like I could, you know, I could push LogMD, I could run LogMD, I just didn't have a way to pull the reports back, which is why our, our guest is online. So you you kind of tried to improve Kanza, but of course he couldn't work on it. Um, he couldn't. And that's why it was formed. Well, yeah, kind of. Yeah, I think Dave is, um, as, as, um, as was already said, started pursuing other things. Um, and and the, the beginning of Kansa is it's really good. There there were a couple of flaws. One of them is exactly as, um, as Michael mentioned. It, it's it's getting the data back. And and another thing is it's 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 usually trying to convert stuff on the machine, which is quite resource intensive. So that's why I started building a, a module to to at least get log and in there, be very efficient, very quick, and it doesn't take that much resource from the server. I think this started out in a in a compromise assessment that we were. Uh, um, working it was a sort partially ICS environment with a lot of legacy systems that didn't have that much, that, that much resources. And uh, I wanted to have a, a simple and quick way to uh, to scan the whole network for for some potential breaches. And this is where we started working on um, on what later grew into Arthur um, uh, to to have a, a formal means of distributing for first logmd running it but also getting the data back in a consistent way and cleaning up after itself yeah and uh, by the way you can thank uh, olaf for uh, logmd's minus 99 it was on our list of things we knew we wanted to do and and olaf asked us can you uh, harvest all the events in the logs for as long as they have them and so uh, Olaf has definitely uh, gotten his use out of logging DForce for sure. Right. So typically it's it's um, limited to seven days, right? Yep. Yeah, which made, makes total sense in a threat, uh, threat hunt on an incident response. Um, but where I often use it as well is on a compromise assessment where either a new CISO comes on or um, whatever el reason else and, or merger acquisition, that kind of reasons where somebody wants to know um, how are we doing right now? And is there something in our network that we should be knowing about? And then you often need a little bit more than the seven days that are standard. Which means we need a way to walk in an organization, drop our laptop in place, ask them to make a simple change in GPO, and then away we go. Thus, Arthur forked from Kanza. All right, number three, Betcher. All right, so list the improvements that were, I mean, you said that Kanza had issues or it didn't do enough for your purposes. What was added to Kanza to create Arthur? Well, uh, you know, we pushed out the cheat sheets for MITRE ATT&CK to try to map uh, logging in regards to detection so that we could build log queries to MITRE ATT&CK. So one of the things uh, I'm trying to do with anything I work on now is to map to MITRE ATT&CK. Now, A, to measure, but also B, to detect. Uh, if you were to ask me, you know, how do you know, and, and you know, our old our manager, Phil, used to ask us all the time, how do you know to look there? Well, experience. I used to deal with the Chinese and, and right. So MITRE tech put this in a, you know, the technique IDs in a, 
uh, consumable method. There's a number, and I can say, yeah, I can detect that this way, and now you can label that query or thing you made right to MITRE ATT&CK. So in all the templates as well as uh, uh, several of the uh, modules we made, we put a note and section in there for MITRE ATT&CK so you can map your stuff uh, to MITRE ATT&CK. We provided a cheat sheet that you can make notes to say I'm detecting it with this module or whatnot. Um, so there's a blank cheat sheet of MITRE ATT&CK in there for you to, to map your own stuff, but help you use MITRE ATT&CK in the course of using the tool of Arthur was a big improvement um, just by adding notes in the modules as well as providing a, a spreadsheet for you to record your information. And that was a big one. Uh, scheduled task creation on remote systems running PowerShell V2 through V6. Uh, lo and behold, one of the things I like to do is schedule LogMD to run and collect certain things. And one of the things I found was one thing that everybody should be aware of is PowerShell V2, PowerShell V2, PowerShell 5 on Windows 7 is not PowerShell 5 on Windows 10. There are differences in the code, in the modules, in the commandlets that are significantly different. For example, scheduled tasks. There are some very nice commandlets for scheduled tasks in PowerShell 5, Windows 10. They do not exist in Windows 7 PowerShell 5. So uh, we had to come up with a way to create these remote scheduled tasks. Another problem scheduled tasks uh, solved for us is due to the timing out of the Windows remote management session is that uh, if we scheduled a task to run the two big things that LogMD does, a hash baseline or compare and a reg baseline or compare, uh, the WinRM session would time out. By running a scheduled task, it seemed to solve the problem. I can run these start the task, it would run, when it stopped, it would collect the results. And so that was one of the reasons. But we, again, ran into a problem here where I needed to reach out. And Josh Ricard, uh, MS Administrator, at MS Administrator on Twitter, he's, I said, I got a problem with some some uh, PowerShell code. I need some administrator help. Ah, I know who to ask. And so I reached out to Josh, and he helped me write, uh, for the most part, wrote. And then I tweaked, and I sent back, and this is working. And about four iterations of it, a scheduled task module that worked on PowerShell v2 all the way through v6 using the older code in order to make it work across all the PowerShells. So that was a problem it solved that uh, Consa also does not have. Um, the ability to push a binary to a folder other than the Consa default C windows. So that was another thing that I didn't like about Consa is I don't want to drop things into my windows directory, especially if they don't get cleaned up. Somebody may stumble across those later and say, what's this doing in here? Not to mention, you know, you always want to clean up after yourself. So moving them out of windows and having that built into the modules was something I wanted to do. I, I like to put my stuff in weird locations, not in in the typical location, so I want to have flexibility there. Cleanup module, so that once you run something, if you enable the cleanup module, it will then delete everything, right? Um, so that's important because we don't want to leave our remnants behind. You know, when you're dealing with this in response, you get an infection, you want to be sure to delete the thing you were looking for. Don't leave the remnants there because three months, four months later, like when we fought the Chinese in the gaming industry, if we left anything behind and stumbled across it later, we're like, oh no, you know, they've been in for months. Uh, you had to be a really good job of cleanup. So again, a cleanup module is built into this. Uh, multiple cleanup modules are built into this. Run any binary tool and get back the native reports. This is a big one that Olaf solved for us. And of course, all the old Kanza capabilities, you just have to do some slight conversion. Uh, Kanza was built on running PowerShell 
remotely, running your tool, taking that that output, converting it back to a PowerShell consumable way, and then again, like Olaf said, it, it takes up resources. Not to mention, you can't just you know double click and open them in Excel if your stuff CSV formatted, and pull back the native reports. Right, so you'll have to uh, convert your old Kanza stuff uh, ever so slightly. It's not a, it's not a big deal into the new format, and of course, easy to use. Right, something that's already built into the box and, and whatnot. So Olaf, you. Did you use Kanza before? Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. Together with a couple of other colleagues, I, I didn't do it with full code uh, built myself. I had a former colleague, Ramon, also helped me, and Hugo, who's still a colleague. And we, we use it actually quite a lot. And, and in a domain environment, it, it's actually really, really useful. But in a, in a non-domain environment, you also need to, to tweak it a little bit to be able to uh, contact all the machines that aren't domain joined, which is great, because then at least you have a way to, uh, to distribute your queries. Uh, whereas um, in a in a GPO environment, that's a little bit easier already. Yeah. Um, but we use it quite extensively um, uh, because it's a really accessible tool, especially if a client doesn't have a central logging repository, which sadly still happens. It's a great way of 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 getting a lot of knowledge about the environments relatively quickly. Did you know of them? But did these shortcomings kind of hinder your your abilities before you you got into this, or was this something that you were like, hey, yeah, it really we really do need to pull back these reports or, or things like that, or the consoles uh, back and forth is really slow, that kind of thing. We knew about them, but, but most of the time we learned to deal with them or accept them. Um, but in some environments, as the one I mentioned with a, with a SCADA, a partially SCADA environment, uh, we really, really didn't want to interfere with the system. So we, we went through a bit of extra efforts and, and built that extra module to, to, to deploy LogMD in there and get their, the native logs out of there to, um, yeah, simply because this was a lot more efficient on the, on the end system. It didn't require that much resources, whereas uh, PowerShell did everything in memory. So the memory consumption of uh, converted event logs to CSV was a significant impact on these systems that we couldn't afford to take. I see. And we do it for you, so it makes life easy. If someone wants to use Arthur, what are what are the requirements? Well, you need uh, Windows Remote Management. So PowerShell is built into every machine in the environment if it's Windows-based. And so you have to go in and configure Windows Remote Management. In the Arthur module is a Windows Remote Management configuration guide to help you do that. It's literally three settings unless you're doing uh, negotiation, like uh, Olaf pointed out in a DMZ. You'll have to flip a couple more bits to allow negotiation to happen. But Literally, it's a it's a push with GPO uh, to enable WinRM to tell it what kind of authentication to use, whether or not uh, things are encrypted or not, etc. Uh, which machines you want to lock it down to, or you want it to run on using their IPv4 filtering, and that's it. Simple GPO push, and bam, uh, everybody gets updated, and now you have the ability to do Windows remote management. Pretty straightforward. Yeah, with the only caveat that you might need to open a firewall port, depending on how firewall your environment is. Yeah. If you do have east-west right. firewalls, you will definitely have to open 5985 or 5986, depending on whether you're doing HTTP or HTTPS. So yeah, be aware of that. Or Windows firewalling if you're if you've locked that down in some way. But it can be encrypted communication, right? It can be. Yes, especially within a domain environment, pretty straightforward and easy. If you're not in a domain, probably not going to be what you're going to use. That'll cause you some grief because you rely on the domain to do a lot of it for you. When you're not in the domain, you are more in a manual mode. So if you're in a lab or you're testing this, 
you'll probably definitely want to force that in a non-HTTPS scenario until you get it working and then you can convert it. All right, Olaf, what are some, you get some use cases for Arthur? Yeah, definitely. Well, we talked already about incident response. So that will be the primary one, hence it's in the name. Definitely for auditing or, or, or as I mentioned, a, a compromise assessment, which is sort of similar. It would be also good for threat hunting. So if you're a threat hunting team, Definitely check it out because it can be equally valuable if your sysadmins trust you enough to to let you run it. It can also totally help to validate your your current configuration since also LogND provides you with a lot a nice overview of all your logging settings. There's tons of way to use this. Remediation could be part of uh, so remediating a bit big incidents and, and and the validation of it. You can you can push additional binaries. You can even push some 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 tool or script if you read them yourself to 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 set something that you can't do through through a GPO. Um, and you can also schedule um, uh, for instance an auto runs and and have it file uh, back to your central environment where you can uh, uh, investigate it further. Okay, so all the code is public and you can if you know PowerShell write your own modules, right? So how do you do that? Uh, it's pretty straightforward. We give you a template that has the base in it. You can use all the existing modules that are out there. Um, we converted a couple uh, sys internal modules, a couple local command modules that we included with the Arthur payload uh, just to show people what the difference is. You've got the existing Kanza modules. You can look at it, see what we've did, and then convert it that way. Uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, instead of Kanza, which ran the PowerShell console code and then pulled back that console code, you'll actually write it locally to an output file and then pull that output file back. It's really the major difference. Not not too hard to write them. There's templates available for you within there that has the various templates. I think there's three or four of them. Um, that gives you the guidelines line and just put your bits of codes in there and uh, you can really write remedial code. I mean, it doesn't have to be expert code. Uh, you can if you want to. I mean, if you want to see what crazy code looks like, look at the main Arthur module or console module. And then you look at the module consoles. They're pretty straightforward, really, what they're actually doing when it comes right down to it. You know, run this command, dump it to that file, out file or, or whatever append, and then uh, it gets pulled back by the uh, central uh, Arthur script. Just kind of look at the existing modules, grab the templates, take your idea and and test it. Really, that's all there is to it. Okay, so we got all the links in the show notes. Try it out, see what you think. You can also contribute to the project because it's on GitHub. Just submit your modules or code or whatever, right? Yep, map things to MITRE ATT&CK, please, and then save that. Yeah, all right, I think that's a wrap. Anything else you have to add or you'd like to add, Olaf? Well, maybe maybe one thing. So this, as I mentioned, it's it's an incident response tool. It's not used for forensics. Uh, and keep that in mind, since, since running a lot of PowerShell and, and additional binaries will leave some traces in logs and, and other places. Uh, document this if you run it, um, because if there would be in forensic investigation, you would at least want to show them what you did and why. So that you have a proper proper log of this. Yeah, that is, that is a very good point. I think Olaf reminded me of that in writing it. It does create noise, right? So as you run this in your environment, it will create noise of what you're doing. Uh, we did in the course of that comment with Olaf, I went back and, and looked at the Arthur code and put as many weird little uh, blurps uh, because we run LogMD, which harvests the local logs. But if you're in a sim, same thing. So that you can exclude those bits out of your logging and say, I don't, that's not what I'm looking for to try to reduce what you see from us running that noise. But it will create noise. And so you will have to filter that out and you will need to know that it was running. It was you guys running it, not the bad guys running WinRM. There are WinRM logs that will tell you that X, X, Y, and Z started. And so, yeah, be aware that uh, noise is created by this. But generally, the IR people or the 
people that you hand over after IR to forensics, uh, yeah, you definitely have to tell them, I started running WinRM on this time and day, or this day, this afternoon on this day, and I ran it, so you know, this is probably me, unless you find, you know, and, but I can tell you exactly what I ran. Here's the modules, here's here's the code, etc. And so they can differentiate between good and bad. Right, so you have the concept of a whitelist built in. Yes, yeah, we have it built into our PowerShell ex- exclusion list uh, in LogMD. So when we run, as I run this a million times in my home test environment, um, obviously I'm trying to filter out all the noise in Humio so I don't see the results of what I'm running. And then I try to run some generic WinRM command and boom, it shows up on my logs. That's generally the goal. All right. I guess that's it. Anyway, thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.